And welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by senior tech reporter covering all things fintech, hailing from the great state of Texas. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm great. Great. So happy you're here. How are you? I cleaned up dog excrement to start the day today, so I've had more smooth Thursdays, but hey, that's life. Don't worry, Marianne, though. We also have Becca Skutek with us. Becca, hello. You're on the TC Plus team. You cover all things venture. How are you and how is your week? I am good. My week is good because I didn't have the neurovirus this week like I did last. <laughs> so feeling a lot better. I did not know that's what you had, Becca. I'm so sorry. I think so. I mean, I didn't go to the doctor, so I'm guessing. But based on news and talking with other people, it seems like it's been going around, but not with me anymore. Thankfully. Oh, God. Yeah. Yay. Becca may be done throwing up, but we're not done puking up all the tech news for you. I don't Ooh. know if that worked at all. Here's a rundown <laughs> of the show. Deals of the week. We have Divert, Trust and Will, and what's going on with Ethereum NFTs. Our first theme is going to be a quick check-in on the Boston startup scene. Then we're going to talk about AI and venture hype cycles and wrap with Amazon and Better.com. Of course, Marianne's absolute sweet spot. It's going to be one hell of a show. But before we start, Natasha is away this week. She's at a conference. She'll be back on the podcast next Wednesday. Don't worry. She's just taking a well-earned break. She'll be back ASAP. Now, Becca, food waste is a not really a tech issue, but it appears to be something that tech can attack. So tell us about Divert and why they are on the show today. Mm-hmm. Divert is on the show today because they are a company that helps analyze grocery store waste streams and suggests how to reduce food waste. So food waste is one of the biggest issues we have here in the U.S. as far as climate implications goes. 35% of the food supply in the U.S. is wasted. And so there's a lot of different things out there. Some are targeting consumers trying to reduce waste, corporations, obviously grocery stores fits right in there. So Divert's looking, yeah, to help grocery stores kind of reduce their waste and figure out better ways to kind of manage that issue. What's particularly interesting about this is that they raised $100 million in growth equity. And why that's interesting is this company has been around for quite a few years. It was founded in 2007. And prior to their most recent raise, they only raised $5 million in the first 14 years that they were around. Wow. Which is super interesting that they were able to kind of be really lean capital-wise and still land partnerships with all the grocery stores you would want if you're focused on that category, Kroger, Safeway, Albertsons, those big name chains who own pretty much all the other big name chains. And so I just thought this was interesting. I think food waste is just a crazy problem in general. But seeing a startup that's this old raise so little for so long and then like continue to grow organically and then raise this big round down the line is pretty interesting. Yeah, the story actually was very different than I expected. I thought we were going to just talk about food waste and dealing with waste after it had been thrown away because in the story, we talk about how food then breaks down in landfills, releases, I think it's methane. So some landfills try to burn that off. It doesn't really work that well. But Divert wants to actually keep food out of these landfills. And they have a history, Becca, of using digesters, essentially large chemical vats to kind of break this stuff down. Yeah. No, and they were saying that this is like a process that 
pretty much does exactly what happens at the landfill. But when they do it, it's quicker and then has less of like an environmental impact on the back end. So kind of interesting because they're trying to help companies reduce their food waste. But then using tech like a digester helps them. I mean, some stuff just can't be saved. I know the example in the piece Tim gave was like wilted spinach, which I'm sure if anyone buys greens, the joke is you buy them to throw them in the trash. So I like the multi-prong approach there. I also really love that for the food that is actually like still good, but just maybe past its best buy date, they help find ways to donate that food. And I think that's hugely important. And it's something that I always think about, like how much perfectly good food just gets thrown out when there are so many hungry people that could eat it, you know, like, it's just so frustrating. And I've long thought there has to be better ways, like to have matchmakers such as divert, like help get this food that's still good into the hands of people who need it. So I really like that as well. And it reminded me when I my first job as a 16 year old, I worked at a Panera Bread and was surprised because Panera Bread is a huge, obviously national corporation. And they where I worked every single night, the bakery items were donated and they were not just donated to say someone else who would then distribute it for them. They were donated to specific charities every single night. I love that. I love it. I know. And the thought of like, if a company like that can figure out how to connect to these local charities, I mean, some like local charities, some were like one was a specific church. So it's like very small scale. So it's good to see other companies looking to tackle this because it clearly can be done. Right. It can be done. And 35% of the food supply in the US being wasted is a number that really knocked me on my ass. I mean, that's that's more than a third. That's more than one out of every three, I don't know if it's pounds or calories, but it's such an enormous fraction, especially given, as Marianne said, just kind of rampant food insecurity in this country. I mean, again, I'm a capitalist, but here seems to be a place where we're not doing our best work. I would mm-hmm. agree with that. It's it's just shameful, really. And and we can we can do better as a country. So wish there were more companies like this one out there. Yeah. Can I just throw in a tiny little like historical anecdote? I used to work on a farm for a bit and I was assigned to drive various slow pieces of equipment. And I actually got to help compact a foundation for a digester on this farm that was going to use their own agricultural uh, leftovers to create some sort of biofuel thingy. So I, d- I never got to see it finished, but I did help with one of these projects way back in the day. So I was really excited to read about them on TC. How neat. Yeah. Yeah. Tim did a great job of like breaking it down and explaining it in an easy to understand way. Yeah. Alex, just think about, can you imagine if every time you ordered three pancakes, you threw one in the trash? Well, no, because that, that's <laughs> sacrilegious. He wouldn't do that, though. Yeah. But imagine if he did. Right. Yeah. I just can't imagine any reason why I would throw away a pancake. You can always just save them (laughs) for later. And speaking about saving things for later, you might want to conserve your assets when your time up on this earth has passed. In Marianne, there's a company in startup land called Trust and Will that's helping people do just that. Yes, indeed. Thinking about our future, planning a will is not something that a lot of us actively want to do, right? We want to avoid it kind of like we want to avoid the dentist. The thing is, though, it's actually super important to have a will. And there's a startup out there that really wants to make it easier for you to draft one digitally. And it just raised another $15 million in funding. And interestingly, it raised it not from like traditional venture firms, but Amex Ventures, USAA, the huge banking giant, Northwestern Mutual Future Ventures, SEI. So I think it's a very interesting company. It's a digital service. So you can just get online. And I've done this. I've done it. So I can speak 
to its ease. You just get online, you answer a bunch of questions, they make it very easy for you, and then you get a will. Now you do have to pay a subscription every year, a very nominal fee, just in case you need to update something because things happen in life, then things change. And so the company then gets upfront revenue when you actually do your will, then they get subscription revenue as you maintain or have the option to maintain over the years. And it's doubled its revenue year over year since 2020. So obviously it's doing pretty good. Yeah. Becca, on the doubling revenue point, I'm curious, how much credence do we give that given that they wouldn't share hard numbers? Makes me mad. But something that's interesting about this is the fact that revenue has doubled isn't super surprising. At VC I spoke to a couple years ago described companies like this as like pen and paper tech. So like stuff that's like really annoying to do, like very document focused and how no one, when you think of like, I'm going to become an entrepreneur, I'm going to have a moonshot company. No one's like, you know, with estate planning. But like, these are the startups that end up, you know, like actually solving the real problems most of the time. So it's always good to see that they're not only doing well, but able to kind of raise funding to expand because this is such a important topic as opposed to some of the other things we see that raise quite a lot more money. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely falls probably into that very non-sexy category of startup, but it's addressing an important problem. They said that they passed 478,000 cumulative members last year, I believe that was. So they're just attracting more and more users. And there are more young adults than ever that are actually starting to think about this. Apparently, the pandemic got people thinking about it more than they might have, according to a recent study. So I think the fact that it's digital is definitely going to appeal to the younger generation as well. So you're telling us that Gen Z doomers are driving Trust and Will's ARR growth. No, that I don't know for sure. But I, I'm just saying that a recent study showed that there are more young adults aged 18 to 34 that are thinking and doing estate planning than there were before the pandemic. 50% more, actually. I'm, I'm going to call that Gen Z doomers in the TikTok wave, but <laughs> I hear you. Becca, before we leave this one, though, when I hear MX Ventures, Northwestern Mutual Fund Ventures, USAA, and I'm looking at a company that provides a financial service-ish, to me, I, that smells like strategic capital and possibly partnerships and so forth. Is oh, that yeah. how you read that? For sure. Yeah, I've just been talking with a lot of CVCs, too, about kind of what they look for in startups that's different from, say, a traditional VC. And while, of course, the CVCs of today, as opposed to the ones maybe a decade, 15 years ago, they, of course, want the financial returns. It needs to be a financial play still. But I mean, they love partnerships. Yeah. If you're a customer, you have a lot of overlapping customers. That's a big positive to CVCs in a way that wouldn't be to traditional venture investors. So I'm not surprised to see this partnership here. I'm just curious if this will end up in those kind of players duking it out to who can like acquire them down the line. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. Just to point out that Amex Ventures is talking about looking forward to exploring opportunities to partner with Trust and Well. And I definitely see this company as a prime acquisition target. If it continues to grow as it is, somebody's going to scoop it up and incorporate it into their offering sometime in the near future. I'm also now absolutely stuck on the idea of CVS making its own CVC because then you could just have all these hilarious acronyms. <laughs> Speaking of acronyms, we need to talk about NFTs for a second here. 
which I know is on the show strictly because Marianne cannot stop thinking about it and uh, and just telling us how much she adores non-fungible tokens. But Marianne, the good news for you and all your fellow fans is that NFT trading volume on the Ethereum blockchain, the most popular one for NFTs, is actually seeing increasing volume. And the overall volume for Ethereum NFTs was over a billion dollars in the last month, which is the first time since I think May of last year. And I don't think any of us expected this. So Marianne, how happy are you? Well, you know, happy is not the word I would use to describe how I feel about it. I would say shocked. I'm really surprised. I mean, I, I kind of forgot about NFTs, to be honest with you. And I didn't think that this was this was still happening. Like, who's doing this? What's going on? I don't get it. I can help with that. We, we've talked about OpenSea on the show for a couple of years now. OpenSea is a heavily venture-backed, highly valued NFT marketplace, simple business model for a long time. They just took a 2.5% cut of uh, transactions on the platform. And then the NFT market kind of deflated like a souffle that was left out in the cold. And since then, a new player has come up called Blur that is seeing quite a lot of market share gains at the expense of OpenSea to a degree. And what they've done is at Blur, they've essentially gone with 0% transaction fees, introduced a token, and also really cut creator royalties down to, I think it's 0.5%. So OpenSea suddenly is being kind of cost undercut, Marianne. And so they have temporarily reduced their trading fees to 0% as well. But if there's no trading fees, I don't see how these businesses, if they don't have their own token, make any money. Because, you know, Becca, when OpenSea was seeing tons of volume, they were just raking in like nine figures a month in revenue. And now with volume down and 0%, am I reading this wrong? Is there, that's bad, right? Are you implying it's a Web3 company without a solid business model? What, are you implying that? I mean, I don't want to go, <laughs> I mean, don't put me on the spot here, but I mean, may, maybe it could be perhaps. I'm just I feel like we're missing a part of the story here. Like they must have like there must be some kind of partnership we haven't heard about as to why the volume's going up, because I just feel like I hear about it less and less. And it's not just because I'm sending all of those PR people to my trash folder, but like I just feel like I'm not seeing it as much now. So there must be some kind of and I know in actual terms, there are some uses for NFTs that do make sense. Like I people talking yeah. about moving certain like contracts, documentation, stuff that make it easier to track moving on the blockchain, like car deeds and stuff like that. Like I have heard and can understand some of those use cases. So I have a feeling if volume's going up like this and we can't peg it why, someone has found a real use case that maybe people are using NFTs without really knowing it, would be my guess. So that's optimistic. I'm I'm here for that. I thought it was just people getting really excited about the new Yuga Labs platformer game called Dookie Dash. I thought that was going to be the real driver. <laughs> No? Okay. I am very happy to report I have never heard of that. Yeah. Well, I follow most of crypto Twitter, so I get all sorts of fun things. The reason the story caught my eye, I wanted to bring it on the show, was we do make jokes at the expense of NFTs, but volume is going up for whatever reason, data point. And also we're seeing fee compression. And I think that matters because we've seen similar things in the world of equities trading. Robinhood was especially critical in driving that down to essentially zero. And I've really thought for a long time that there should be a similar downward pressure on fees in the crypto space. And, you know, I don't want to bring up Coinbase because they're not a startup anymore, but like, I'm, I'm curious about how the overall fee compression in fintech will harm or benefit certain companies over others and how many marketplaces will make it. It's, it's a broader fintech question, Marianne, but, you know, consumer fees aren't popular amongst banking customers in general, broadly. And so I'm expecting these to also be under downward pressure. We'll see, right? It remains to be seen. 
All I know is that if I start talking a lot about buying NFTs, know that someone is holding me hostage and I need to be rescued. That will be my, I'm blinking into the camera. I I think for me, it would be Keith Raboy is right. I'm moving to Miami. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. Marianne, what's your, uh, I mean, held captive, come save me comment that you can make on Twitter. Oh my God. I don't know. I'd have to think about that, but I'm up there with Beck on the NFTs. You know how I feel about them. And so, you know, probably something similar. I mean, look, I, I did not bring up the whole Bitcoin ordinal NFT brouhaha. You're welcome. Let's move on, though. We have some big themes to get through this week. The first one is all about Boston. And Becca, it's a city that you know quite well. So what is going on up there in Beantown and why is it on the show today? Yeah. So we're talking about Boston today because TechCrunch recently did a city spotlight on the city. And Boston, I'm from the area. I won't say I'm from Boston because I'm not a liar, but I'm from the area. I lived there for a number of years. I covered the startup scene locally while I lived there. And Boston seemed so hot for so long and numbers wise, it still is pretty up there. But just a lot of little interesting anecdotes to pull out of the recent TC coverage with the spotlight. Also plug, we will be there in April, some of us for early stage. So come and say hi if you love Boston or live in the area. But kind of looking at what's happened in the city, because I know from just my read on checking out just general startup activity following trends. It seemed like Boston had kind of lost some of its luster over the last few years, like especially like biotech getting hit decently hard, especially on the public market last year. Like some of the big blowups in the public biotech market were in Boston. So some of the excitement around the market seemed to kind of fade. Like I hadn't heard about a new firm being funded there in a while. And it just felt kind of like it was losing its place as one of the top markets, but data proves otherwise. City's been doing pretty well, topped out at $34 billion in investment in 2021, which doubled 2020, which is crazy. And yeah, it dropped in 2022, but hey, so did everyone else. Well, I mean, $21 billion in funding for the broader Boston area is short behind, you know, SF and New York, but it's certainly still a ton of money and more than in historical periods. So it's not like the city still hasn't seen more investment total. It just cut off that one year as an outlier event and the trend looks pretty positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Marianne, the thing that actually caught my eye about the whole Boston dive was that you know, Austin has also seen recently a boom in startup activity, especially through the 2021 era boom. And we've seen numbers come down there. And so I'm curious if there are analogs between Boston and Austin. I really think they're still just very, very, very different cities. CPG in Austin is actually huge. Boston consumer is not hot at all, right? It's very much a, there's a biotech focus, hard science focus. Cybersecurity is big there. I think Austin has for it what Boston does not. I mean, Austin's known for like being hip and cool and laid back. And I can't, I've never visited Boston, but I would say that that is not something that Boston is known for. Boston's like the least hip place. Right. right. I don't see, I didn't say I don't it. see a lot of parallels, to be honest, between the two cities. Obviously, Boston gets a lot more venture dollars than Austin does. What were the numbers here in the chart for Austin? I know this isn't about Austin, but it was, it was dramatically less if I recall correctly. Well, while you look those up, the reason why I, I dragged Austin into this isn't just to create another opportunity to make jokes at Texas's expense, but really because I'm very curious about what I'm going to politely call secondary markets in the U.S. startup scene. Because I kind of grew up writing in the Chicago scene when it was very, very small. And so I got to kind of watch that go from you know small companies that became public companies like Sprout Social and so forth. And I have a soft spot 
for them. I, I want them to do well. Yeah. But I'm very curious now that we're in this downturn contraction, more conservative moment, what happens to cities that did do so well during the pandemic era? And I'm hoping that we don't see a cratering and that we instead see more of a soft landing, which appears to be the case in Boston. Yeah. And just so we close that loop, Austin last year, it was 4.9 billion raised and that compares to 6.6 6 in 2021. So still significantly less than those top few markets, but also still in what, like the top 10. Yeah. But that's not, Becca, that's not a very bad percentage decline compared to like, you know, going from 34 to 21. Actually, actually about the same percentage decline, actually, now that I do the math. Okay. never mind. Well, I'm excited for Boston. And now that TechCrunch is going up there in April, I need to start going back up and visiting. I, I stopped going when the pandemic hit. And it's not that far away from Providence. I really need to go say hi to everybody. How far is it? Like an hour or two? If you drive my house to the Boston airport, it's about an hour, hour and 15, depending. There's a train. There's several trains. I always end up on the slow one. So it takes about three years, but there's also Amtrak and so forth. So it's not that bad. I mean, the Northeast is not that big. That's really close. Well, it's Texas close. In Rhode Island, if something's 10 minutes away, people are like, oh, I'm not going to that. It's too far. Oh my God. Here an hour is like within cities. So anyway, you don't want to hear me answer on the New York perspective here. <laughs> you can't dangle it and not not drop it. So what you got? Well, I think the public transit here is amazing. So even though it'll take you an hour and a half, I can take the subway from my apartment to the beach, which I love. Love it. And that takes an hour and a half? Mm-hmm. Do you know how many beaches are within driving distance of my of where I live that are like 15 minutes away? Probably like five. Rhode Island. We're landlocked here too. I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to get depressed. <laughs> All right. Just to close out the Boston thing, don't forget the importance of education clusters in driving overall startup activity. We riff a lot about how Boston does biotech and hard science. And it's not a shock that there's so many universities and colleges there, of course, including MIT and Harvard in the broader Cambridge-Boston conglomeration, but a lot more than just that. And they're all party to it. But let's scoot along. And well, this is a tough one. I want to talk about generative AI, but I want to talk about that via the lens of crypto funding. Marianne, can I can I do more crypto before you fall asleep? No, no, of course. I think it, it's important context and you have interesting data to back it up that people need to hear. All right. So let's keep this at pretty high level. But if you didn't know it, the Web3 boom that we saw in consumer activity was also very much a boom in venture capital activity. And, you know, dozens of billions of dollars, especially since 2021, were invested into crypto Web2 companies with a split about 60-40 early late stage money, as far as I can tell. And we have since then seen that dollar amount pretty much crater. I think the highest dollar month I saw in PitchBook data was like four and a half billion. And now it's down to like 700 million a month. Oof. So still money's flowing into it, but a, a fraction of, of what we saw before. And I was, you know, perplexed by this and a little bit worried about so many of the companies that raise money, because if they can't raise more, they'll probably end up dying. Um, and then I was really curious about what about generative AI? Everyone's talking about it. We've seen some some rounds in that market. But Becca, what surprised me was when I pulled out the data, there actually hasn't been anything like a similar wave of capital flowing into generative AI. And so I don't know. I'm confused and I'm curious from your venture perspective if you are as well. Yeah, no, that was surprising to me. And I think what may be one of the factors here is that there could be an opportunity here for this to be underreported just based on the nature of the tech of generative AI. 
Generative AI. It's hard to say. It is hard to say. AI should fix that for us. <laughs> we really started all talking about it this fall because of companies like Lenza and ChatGPT and stuff like that. But since then, it's like all these companies have come out of the woodwork who are like, hey, we're a medical scribe company, but we technically use generative AI. So I feel like there might be like a under tagging here. Mm. Also, on the same thing, as much as some startup founders love to lean in, to the hype because it generally brings VCs to their door, which is a good thing if they're looking for capital. Some companies that use generative AI may not want to be associated with kind of what's happening right now. And that's something that's kind of come up in some conversations I've had where people are like, we don't want our company to get super hyped up and be thought of in this way when they're like, we've been around for seven years. We have customers. We're doing the work. We're like a normal company. We just happen to use generative AI. So I think there is sort of a lot of weird threads coming together here, which might explain why it was less investment than we thought. But I mean, this is going to be the category I'm definitely keeping the closest eye on this year because hype cycles produce absolutely wild stories and VCs behave crazily in hype cycles. So I'm curious what will happen next. Yeah. Marianne, is this showing up at all in your fintech reporting? Because one thing that shocked me is that generative AI, to pronounce it correctly for once the show by myself, is surprisingly broad in its application. I mean, we're seeing this from medical tech, like Becca mentioned, into copywriting and marketing, and I presume also somewhat into the world of money. Yeah, I mean, I think it's starting to penetrate more. And maybe as Becca said, there are companies that have been using it, just haven't maybe broadcast it loudly. But like, for example, Trip Actions, which is now Navon, recently announced using generative AI and, and its offering with related to like expenses and things like that, booking reservations. So I think we're definitely going to see more of it. I was also would like to say I was very surprised by that bell kind of curve that we saw there with the funding in generative AI. It was like peaked, what was it, 2021? Yeah. I was surprised at the study decline since. I also was surprised by something else. I just have to bring this up. This this company that recently raised $43 million, is it Tome? Am I pronouncing it correctly? I don't think it's Tome. So Tome. sure. <laughs> Tome. Okay. So they just raised $43 million at a $300 million valuation. Say they have 100 million users since their September release, but it's still pre-revenue. And I was like, okay, what? Now, are we in 2021 again? Like, what? In 2021, it would have been worth $3 billion, not $300 million. That's true. That's true. But like, I don't know why I get irrationally enraged when I read things like that. It just, it just pisses me off when I see companies that are pre-revenue raising that kind of money at that kind of valuation. When you see other startups that have like real solid traction and then like barely can get the attention of VCs or, or you know, land a, a few million dollars, it just pisses me off. And one more note about the funding... That's interesting, just before we move on from that, is that seeing that the funding had dropped was particularly interesting because I was just so not clued in on this category prior to a few months ago. Like, you never heard about generative AI. So it was interesting to see that it had been raising so much money before it started to decline because I just felt like we weren't hearing about it that much. Well, I think some of that funding probably is tagged to open AI and similars. And so maybe we saw some big checks back in the day that was put into the technology we're now seeing in the market that everyone else is now trying to capitalize on. So there could be a lag effect in, in product building. But I want to go back. And Becca was right to say that first because I'm going to go off topic here. 
I'm sorry, trip actions is called what now? Oh, yeah. I think this is when you were out on paternity leave. Mm-hmm. Navan, N-A-V-A-N. They rebranded like I think a month ago or so. That sounds like a consumer health tech company that I don't care about that does like like spa software. Navan. They had a reason for it. I can't remember what it meant. It's because they're no longer so trip focused. But like, you know what trip actions is uh, known for? It's name. Like, I, I know that company. Navon is just like, yes. it sounds like generative AI was asked, give me a boring startup name. I'm just going to say I'm always pro startup names that are easy to pronounce, which <laughs> we don't always get. Um, and I'm not saying that if like you start in a different country and we have an issue pronouncing it here. I mean, if you are based in Silicon Valley and you are starting a startup and you choose to make it hard to pronounce just because or you have some silly little reason, I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised, to be honest, because TripActions for a few years now has been focusing on being this broader expense management company. So leaving the name TripActions implied that it was really still focused on travel. So I kind of knew this was coming, but yeah, I wouldn't have predicted this particular type of name change for the company. Yeah, call it Trips, et cetera, something. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Trips and more. Well, okay. So look, if you became an expert at using the company's systems, then you could be a Naven Maven. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. (laughs) All right, Marianne, take us home. We're going to talk about Amazon, Better.com, and why it's a really good idea to use illiquid stock grants as a way to buy a home. Yeah. And what you would call surprising partnership news this week, Amazon has teamed up with Better.com. Now, remember, this is the company that laid off people multiple times in a very harsh manner with a CEO that's known for being... um, Prickly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, that's besides the point. They've teamed up with Better.com. So they're giving their employees a way to use their stock, their vested equity to finance the purchase of a home. Now, the question that we all had internally here at TechCrunch was like, why Better.com? Now, not only has Better.com been in the headlines for its shameful way and letting go of people and treating them poorly even after they're let go. But I mean, the company is not doing well. Let's just just face it, just in terms of its performance. I mean, it's, it's business tanked 2021, 2022, as the mortgage industry suffered from higher interest rates. It was supposed to go public via SPAC, has not. I think that deadline's coming up any day now. I mean, to be honest, we're all wondering how it's even still in existence. Why would Amazon pair up with a company that has such a rocky existence? Like, why would you do that? No, that's just crazy to me because I think like the natural response, or at least the response we talked about would probably come from Amazon is that they use Amazon Web Services. So probably easy to kind of that's like a layup answer. But I did a quick search on the tech company known as Google and found at least a few other mortgage startups within five seconds that also use Amazon Web Services. So if that's like the main reason, which I'm not saying it is, they didn't say that, but there's a lot of other choices. I have a conspiracy theory here. So Amazon owns a lot of real estate in Washington state, right? Which I believe is one of the states where this program is rolling out. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. One of the three. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're a corporation who owns a lot of land and buildings, you have a lot of assets on your books and you want to defend the valuations of those because otherwise you have to take write downs and it's messy. So what you want to do is to encourage real estate prices in the local area to go up. And that means you want your employees to buy houses there. So that way, one, they can't leave. And also two, to protect your own real estate prices. So what do you do? You team up as a way to use the way you pay your employees as a way to drive consumption of local real estate, aha, driving up prices and therefore making your own assets more valuable. Now that is a bull 
reason for this to happen. It's not the real case, but that's where my brain goes after being off for two months staring at a wall. I mean, it's not out of the question, honestly. I mean, we did ask Amazon, you know, why did you choose better.com? They really did not answer that question directly. They just focused more on saying that this was just a benefit they continue to look for benefits for their employees. One thing though, better.com is charging a higher rate on these mortgages. I think it's between 0.25 and 2.5 percentage points above the market rate, depending on how the down payment is structured. I mean, first of all, mortgage rates are pretty damn high right now as it is. I think they're averaging around 6%. So if you tack on another two and a half, you're talking over 8%. And if a house in Washington costs like Let's say a million because it's the Seattle area. What's eight and a half percent of a million? Is that $85,000? Yes, it is. Maybe it's just me. But if I, as an employee, and I actually did this when I was 28 years old, I was like, okay, I want to buy something. I'm tired of renting. So I did cash out at the time, my 401k and paid the penalties and used that money as a down payment on a townhouse when I was 28. Now, at the time, I wasn't thinking about retirement, of course. But still, I would. I think I would much prefer to do that. Even now, if I were like, I need money for a down payment, I don't want to use vested equity to do that. I would rather do something like, you know, cash in a, a 401k or part of it, pay a penalty and use that. I mean, I just don't understand why anybody would want to do this. That's a crazy story, actually. <laughs> I love that in Marianne's story, a 28-year-old could do a down payment on a townhouse on their accumulated 401k savings. Yeah, I totally did think about that. And I was like, that wouldn't work. No, no, no. This was Houston. And we're talking like under $100,000 20 some years ago. So so now half the cost of one SF parking spot. Yeah, exactly. You know what I would love to see is uh, VCs investing in anything that really helps with housing density, because I'm tired of, of us all complaining about how much it costs to, to buy houses in the country. It'd be great to have a different conversation. You know, It's also a problem in Australia and the UK and Canada and so many other markets. I, I can't believe we've forgotten how to build more. It's a little bit depressing. Um, all right. Uh, we, we're over time, but I, I want to just thank Becca again for stepping in while I was away. Becca's on my team. I get to work with her all the time. She's brilliant and fantastic and, and super kind and funny and great on podcasts. And so Becca, just thank you for your work. Thanks for sticking in. And uh, we'll see you around on a semi-regular basis, it sounds like. Yeah. Anytime you need me to give an update about SBF in relation to Real Housewives, I mean, I'm always available. <laughs> we'll miss you. I feel like that's a joke that I missed somehow, but... <laughs> Becca, you're also uh, on another one of our podcasts and you have a Twitter account. So go ahead and drop your promo before we go. Yeah, no, you can also hear me pretty much every week over on Found where we tell the stories behind early stage startups. So getting kind of not only into the founding story, but also sort of how people choose to structure leadership at the companies and less focus on the numbers and more of a focus on sort of the human side of creating these companies. So you can hear me there and you can find me on the tweet company at Rebecca underscore Scoot. You will have to look up the spelling of my name at twitter.com. S-Z-K-U-T-A-K. I've had to type that into Airtable like 48,000 times, which is good to be clear, but I've learned how to spell it. Yes. Marianne, also thank you for being here as always. You're an absolute treat. Anything you want to promo before we go? Like a fintech newsletter perhaps that you may write on a weekly basis? Every week. I write a fintech newsletter. It's called The Interchange. Go to techcrutch.com forward slash newsletters and sign up. Yep. It's great. I uh, I read it and actually I link to it on a weekly basis because Marianne is brilliant. And a couple of show notes here. Don't forget, you can follow Equity on Twitter where we tweet under the handle EquityPod. That's where we do general hangs and updates and maybe some Twitter spaces in the upcoming weeks. And if you want to save some money, use the code Equity to save cash on early stage passes here for April in Boston. 
or money off of TechCrunch Plus itself. Code equity. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. Editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm. TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skutak. And TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development. And Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.